The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast, hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travelled podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. G'day everyone, it's Nikki from the Road Less Travelled podcast. A warm welcome to you. If you've just joined us for the first time, welcome aboard the Road Less Travelled podcast. Each episode we try and get a little bit of history, we find a destination of choice, we have a little bit of a chat about that, the history of the area, how it came to be and some sites that you can see while you're out and about. And I know a lot of the country is still under various stages of lockdown, uh, it will get better. Speaking of better, have you tried your WebEQ barbecue? We have, and we did it with a baked snapper. You can roast it on the, the, the little Q trivet and the convection tray uh, that you get with um, your Weber Q. The ingredients is a whole baby snapper, cleaned and scaled, which is probably around a two kilo one. Uh, get some fresh oregano, some fresh thyme, a sliced uh, whole lemon sliced, a splash of white wine, some salt, and of course a freshly ground black pepper you lay the snapper out on a double layer of good quality aluminium foil make sure that there's enough of of the foil to wrap all around the edges to fold and create almost like a parcel that's to be created a little bit later on you stuff the cavity sounds nice stuff the cavity or the inside of the um snapper with the lemon slices and a bunch of oregano and thyme then splash some white wine all over the fish and you season generously with the salt and pepper you can also if you want to in the inside of the um, the snapper you can put some uh, garlic as well it's mm, delicious you wrap the aluminium foil around the fish making sure that the parcel is completely sealed and then cook in the Weber queue for approximately 45 minutes it is absolutely beautiful when you know it, it know it's cooked when the flesh starts coming away from the bone of the fish and it is just absolutely delicious you can have it serve it with um, homemade chips um, a salad or vegetables and absolutely divine check out um, we'll put some more recipes up i think as well on uh, dealing with the weber cube just coming to terms with it it's a great little piece of uh, investment that we've done on the road less travel and someone asked the question not too long ago of what fishing rods that i actually like to use i'm a big fan of the jarvis walker range of uh, fishing rods made in Australia. I think Jarvis Walker started about the late 1940s in Deep Dean in Melbourne. And it's not often these days you can get something that's made in Australia. So that's what I, what we try and do. Uh, and once you head into your local fishing department aisle, you will see um, most of the stuff where it comes from is made in China overseas. The Jarvis Walker, the, the rod that I use and have a lot of success success with, is the Water Rat V or Water Rat 5. It's an 8-foot uh, general purpose combo Jarvis Walker uh, spinning combo. And they're a, they have a remarkable range of rod and reel outfits providing really excellent value for money. And it doesn't matter who you are or what your preferred style is, if you're a beginner or a novice or an experienced, these Jarvis Walker Rat 5 spinning combos are just the ticket to a balanced package and they are at the right price. These combos feature a state-of-the-art ball bearing spinning reel equipped with stainless steel main shafts. There's a brass pinion gear and improved drag system which really allows you to reel in with ease. 
and Jarvis Walker wrapped um, five spinning combo reels come already spooled with line and are ready for action from the get-go. They also feature strong and durable fiberglass and tubular rods in a range of different sizes and the Jarvis Walker Rat 5 uh, spinning combos are really perfect for any technique. As I said, they feature the ball bearing reel. They've got a stainless steel main shaft, brass pinion gear, spool wood line and tubular rod. They are ready to go. And if you're looking at a good little reel to, um, to sort of... Uh, as I said, it comes as a, a combo, but if you're looking for a nice little reel as well, Jarvis Walker do a whole heap of uh, reels as well, separate to the rods. So if you're interested in just getting reels or rods, you can get it separate. You don't have to get the combo. Now, when we left last week's episode, we're in it uh, halfway through a two-part episode. Part one was, of course, on the trail of Ned Kelly. We left you at Glen Rowan. And speaking of Glen Rowan, we stayed at the Glen Rowan Park, which is set on 35 acres at the foothills of the Warby Ovens National Park, which is about two and a half k's from the historical town of Glen Rowan. It's a quiet family-owned park, perfect place to base yourself to relax and explore the many attractions of the region. There's uh, 10 cabins, 22 powered sites, a number of unpowered sites in the bush area as well. They have native flora, fauna and bird life in abundance. Uh, all cabins there are ensuited and range from one to three bedrooms. You can check out more about them on their website. Now the Glen, Glen Rowan Tourist Park is a family home and you're warmly welcomed by Kylie Dean and their kids Tyler and Deacon. They spent the last 16 years working in the local tourism department and Dean is a builder. They moved in the park in 2018 and uh, purchased the park in 2020 just before COVID hit and they've been working really hard to continually improve the offering here at the park whilst keeping its small, unique and a great country feel. So check it out. They're online at Glen glenrowanpark.com.au and uh, it's a great little facility um, good camp camp oven good camp kitchen as well amenities hot cold hot and cold showers there's a parents bathroom swimming pool fire drums and wood uh, camp kitchen with barbecue hot plate microwave oven kettle the whole kit and caboodle laundry clothesline games room book exchange dump point tourist information um, totem tennis as well for the kids bushwalking and cycle tracks plus it is dog friendly as well so a great little place to base yourself if you are on the trail of ned kelly which is where we leave we left you last week with um what happened at glen rowan let's just recap what was happening at Glen Rowan with Ned Kelly? Now, after the Kelly gang had shot the police at Stringy Park Creek, the Victorian police ordered the Kelly gang to turn themselves in. And in 1878, when they failed to comply, the gang was declared outlaws, which was under the recently introduced Felons Apprehension Act. Under the act, outlaws were stripped of all basic rights. They could be shot on site and could be handed to police dead or alive for a large reward. When captured, outlaws could be put to death without a trial. Now, despite their status as murderers and outlaws, the Kelly gang enjoyed the support of much of the public, especially poor settlers who were often treated unfairly by police and squatters. Sympathisers saw the Kelly gang as standing up for the rights of the common man, confronting the injustices of Victorian society, including government and police corruption. The drama surrounding the Kelly gang and the humiliation of local police who were unable to find them or let alone arrest them added to their public profile and notoriety. The Kelly gang was furious at being outlawed, especially as they believed Victorian police were in large part responsible for each of the crimes that the gang had committed following the Fitzpatrick uh, incident and his attempt to arrest Dan Kelly. Over, it was over three months that the gang robbed banks in Euroa and Geraldry. 
Uh, Kelly tried unsuccessfully to arrange for local newspapers to publish his letters justifying the gang's actions and presenting their point of view, including the famous derogatory letter. Frustrated by their inability to be heard, the gang retreated to the bush for nearly two years. They laid low and relied on the support of sympathisers for food, lodging and warnings about police movements. As I said, we left last week at Glen Rowan and in 1880, fed up with life on the run and in intent on striking a blow against authorities, the Kelly gang organised an attack on the Victorian police at the town of Glen Rowan. Their plan involved murdering Aaron Sherritt, an old associate who they believed to become a police informant. Sherritt's death would provoke a response from authorities and the gang would then derail and ambush the train bringing police reinforcements to Glen Rowan. The gang then planned to ride to Benella and rob the bank, using funds from the robbery to finance a local rebellion by Kelly sympathisers. On the night of the 26th of June, the gang rode to Glen Rowan. Ned and Steve Hart rounded up labourers and forced them to destroy the rail line. Meanwhile, Joe Byrne and Dan Kelly shot Aaron Sherritt. Sherritt's protective detail of four police officers were so scared of the gang that they supposedly remained hidden in his house for hours after the shooting. After a long delay, the officers finally escaped and alerted their colleagues. In the early hours of the 27th of June, the gang forced townspeople from their homes at gunpoint and took them to the Glen Rowan Inn, where they waited for the train carrying the police reinforcements from Melbourne. During the night, Kelly released the Curnow family as Mrs Curnow was ill. Thomas, her husband, immediately flagged down the approaching police train with a red scarf, warning them of the planned derailment and thwarting the gang's plans. At around 3am on the 28th of June, officers from the train surrounded the Glen Rowan Inn. Hearing them outside, the gang realised their original plan had somewhat failed. They put on their homemade armour and prepared to fight. As the gang stepped out of the inn, the master police opened fire. Stray bullets injured many of the captives inside the building. Eventually, the gang released the women and children hostages. The siege continued and Joe Byrne was shot and killed. Having sustained minor injuries, Ned Kelly retreated to bushland behind the hotel, intending to circle behind the police and wait for an opportune moment to attack. Dan Kelly and Steve Hart continued shooting at troopers from inside the inn, creating a diversion for Ned. At dawn on the 28th of June, Ned began shooting approaching police out of the bushland behind their lines while wearing his armour. After a brief skirmish, officers shot Ned in his unprotected legs. Badly injured, he was captured and taken into town. The siege continued with Dan and Steve still holding about 30 hostages. The last hostages were released in the afternoon and following this, police set fire to the inn to flush out the remaining outlaws. Dan Kelly and Steve Hart died in the last hour of the siege. It is unclear if they were shot by police or took their own lives to avoid surrendering or being burned alive. The destruction of the Kelly gang was widely publicised. Police lashed Joe Byrne's dead body upright to a door to allow photographers to be t- photographs rather to be taken by reporters who also took pictures of the burnt remains of Dan Kelly and Steve Hart. So what happened then? Well, Ned's wounds were treated and he was taken to Melbourne. As an outlaw, Ned Kelly could have been executed without trial, but due to his notoriety, he was tried in Melbourne on October 80, uh, in October 1880. Authorities hoped to quiet any negative public opinion against him by allowing Kelly the chance to defend himself against the murder charge. The judge presiding over the trial was Redmond Barry, who had sentenced Allen after the Fitzpatrick incident. 
Constable McIntyre was a prosecution witness and he testified that the Kelly gang, rather than acting in self-defence, had prior intent to shoot and kill the police officers at Stringybark Creek. Ned Kelly was found guilty of the murder of Constable Thomas Lonigan and sentenced to death by hanging. There's been a number of books written about uh, Ned Kelly, the Kelly Gang, and there's also uh, quite a few podcasts as well. One podcast that uh, is really worth listening to, it's called A Shout from the Long Grass, and it tells the story of dawn on the 26th of October 1878 when the search party of four Victorian policemen rode out of Mansfield uh, to find and arrest Ned Kelly, and they would not all return. A Shout from the Long Grass, The Police Murders at Stringybark Creek is a podcast from Victoria Police that tells the story of one of the deadliest attacks ever on police in Victoria and one of the most infamous chapters in Australian history. The narrative has been developed from historical sources. They are reminiscence of a Victorian mounted constable, a narrative of the Kelly Gang and other bushrangers by Thomas McIntyre and the evidence from the 1881 Royal Commission on the Victorian Police Force. There's historical guidance from the Victoria Police Museum and contact produ- produced as part of the Stringybark Creek Memorial Site. You can listen to the story on iTunes and Spotify, and um, uh, it is uh, just, uh, I'm stuttering here, using my words, um, probably not suitable for kids to be listening to that sort of stuff, and possibly this podcast might not be suitable for kids as well, but I guess uh, listener discretion. And Stringybark Creek, I don't think I told you in the last uh, episode, from Benalla you take the road to Tatong and follow the signs to Stringybark Creek, and the road becomes gravel as you enter the state forest. It's a day visitor area uh, down Stringybark Creek Road. Or from Mansfield, take the Mansfield-Whitfield Road for 31 k's, turn left down the tatong Tommy Road and travel for approximately 10 kilometres, and Stringybark Creek Road is on the left-hand side. So just um, make sure you do have a search and listen a shout from the long grass it really gives a good perspective from the police side of things for what happened at stringy bark creek we rewind now back in to melbourne and melbourne was the scene of where uh here i guess it's the kelly site in melbourne is the old melbourne jail the site where kelly was held and eventually executed on the 11th of november 1880 aged only 25 around this time ned's family members stayed at the robert burns hotel in lonsdale street Now, Old Melbourne Jail is Victoria's oldest surviving prison and provides a fascinating glimpse of what conditions were like for the hardened criminals housed here between 1841 and 1929. Displays include Ned's cell, the gallows, a suit of armour worn at Glenrowan during the last stand and a plaster cast, or the death mask, used at the time in the study of phrenology to predict criminal behaviour. Ned Kelly is one of 136 men and women who were hanged at the jail's scaffold. You can see the hangman's box, particulars of the execution book and other exhibitions on the grim period of Victoria's history. You can see the Visitor Information Centre for information about Melbourne's attractions. And being a city of around 4 million people, there's attractions to suit all ages and interests. And getting back to... uh, spoke about Ned Kelly's death mask, and there's plenty of things that you can see at the old Melbourne jail... Um, just as a side note that Ned Kelly was the first person born in Victoria to be hanged. There you go. He was convicted at Melbourne on the 29th of October 1880 for murder. Uh, Kelly was a well-known bushranger who captured the public's imagination. His death mask was created after his execution at the Old Melbourne Jail on the 11th of November 1880 and he was aged, as we said, 25. After the execution, Kelly's body remained suspended for 30 minutes as required by law to ensure that he was dead. It was then placed on a handcart and wheeled out the door across the yard and into the dead house. 
There, the execution mask was removed to reveal that Kelly's features had not been disfigured. He had died with a placid expression and his eyes remained bright. Waxworks proprietor Maximilian Kreitmeier shaved the head and prepared a wax mould for a death mask. The mask was cast using plaster and many copies were made, including one that Kreitmeier displayed in his wax museum on Burke Street. Now, death masks were made in the name of science, as well as to inspire fear in would-be criminals. The use of the now discredited science of phrenology was an attempt to understand criminality. Phrenology was a method of reading the shape of the skull and the bumps on the cranium. Each bump, lump and indentation corresponded to a characteristic that built a picture of the individual's personality. How creepy is that? So that's what they thought, that the size of your, your skull or your head determined whether or not you're going to be a good fella or a bad fella. And of course, it was all thrown out the window and discredited as scientific analogy and criminology sort of um, evolved over the years. Now, in line with practice of the day, no records were kept regarding the disposal of an executed person's remains. Ned Kelly was buried in the old men's yard just inside the walls of the old Melbourne jail. A newspaper reported that Kelly's body was dissected by medical students who removed his head and organs for study. Dissection outside of a coronial inquiry was illegal, and public outrage at the rumour raised real fears of public disorder, leading the Commissioner of Police at the time to write to the jail's governor, who denied that a dissection had taken place. A saw cuts on a piece of his, I think it's occipital bone, recovered in 2011, confirmed that a dissection had been done. So we move now to 1929. Melbourne Jail was closed for routine demolition and the bodies in its graveyard were uncovered during the demolition works. During the recovery of the bodies, spectators and workers stole skeletal parts and skulls from a number of graves, including one marked with an arrow and the initials E.K., in the belief that they belonged to Ned Kelly. The E.K. marked grave was situated by itself and on the opposite side of the yard where the rest of the graveyard was situated. The site foreman, Harry Franklin, retrieved the skull from the E.K. Mark grave and gave it to the police. As no provision had been made for the disposal of the remains, Franklin had the bodies reburied in Pentridge Prison at his own expense. The skull from the E.K. Mark grave, which had been stored at the Victorian Penal Department, was taken to Canberra by research by the first director of the Australian Institute of Anatomy, Sir Colin Mackenzie, in 1934. For a period of time it was lost, but it was later found while cleaning out an old safe in 1952. In 1971, the Institute gave it to the National Trust. In 1972, the skull was put on display at the Old Melbourne Jail until it was uh, stolen rather, in December 1978. An investigation in 2010 proved that the displayed skull was in fact the one recovered in April 1929. Now, in March 2008, it was announced that Australian archaeologists believe they'd found Kelly's grave on the site of Pentridge Prison. The bones were uncovered in a mass grave and Kelly's are among those of 32 felons who'd been executed by hanging. Jeremy Smith was a senior archaeologist with Heritage Victoria said that we believe we have conclusively found the burial site but it's very different from finding the remains. Alan Hollow, Kelly's then 62-year-old grandniece, offered to supply her own DNA to help identify Kelly's bones. On the anniversary of Ned Kelly's hanging, the 11th of November 2009, Tom Baxter handed the skull in his possession to police and was historically and forensically tested along with the Pentred remains. The skull was compared to a cast of the skull that had been stolen from the old Melbourne jail in 1978 and proved to be a match. The skull was then compared to the newspaper photograph of worker Alex Talbot holding the skull recovered in 1929 and it showed a close resemblance. 
Talbot was known to have taken a tooth from the skull as a souvenir and a media campaign to find the whereabouts of the tooth led to Talbot's grandson coming forward. The tooth was found to belong to the skull, confirming it was indeed the skull recovered in 1929. In 2004, before the skull was handed to police, a, scar- a cast of the skull was made and compared to the death masks of those executed at Old Melbourne Jail, which had eliminated all but two. The two of those were Kelly and Ernest Knox, who had been executed in March 1894, headstone marked EK 19394, and buried near Frederick Deeming. Headstone was marked with the initials AW and a D underneath. In April 1929, the skulls of the E.K. Mark grave, which was thought at the time to belong to Kelly, and Frederick Deeming relocated, were looted rather from the excavated graves. The death mask of Knox and a facial reconstruction of a cast of the skull were a close match. In 2010 and 2011, Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine performed a series of craniofacial superimposition CT scanning, anthropology and DNA tests of the skull recovered from the E.K. Mark grave and concluded it was not Ned Kelly's. In 2014, the remains of Frederick Deeming's brother was exhumed from a Bevington cemetery and tissue samples were obtained from the femur bone. A DNA profile successfully obtained from the samples and compared with the DNA profile had been previously obtained from the skull that was stolen at the Old Melbourne Jail. The DNA profiles did not match, conclusively proving that the skull is not Deeming's. It is now accepted that the skull recovered in 1929 and later displayed in the Old Melbourne Jail was not Kelly's or Deeming's. Forensic pathologists also examined the bones from Pentridge, which were much decayed and jumbled with the remains of others, making identification difficult. The collarbone was found to be the only bone that had survived in all skeletons, and these were all DNA tested against that of Lee Olver. A match to Kelly was found and the associated skeleton turned out to be one of the most complete. Ned Kelly's remains were additionally identified by partially healed uh, right foot, right knee and left elbow injuries matching those caused by the bullet wounds at Glenrowan as recorded by the jail surgeon in 1880 and by the fact that his head was missing, likely removed for uh, phrenology. Phrenological, there you go, phrenological study. A section of the back of the skull, the occipital, was recovered from the grave that bore saw cuts that matched those present on several neck vertebrae, indicating the skull section belonged to the skeleton and that an illegal dissection had been performed. In August 2011, scientists publicly confirmed a skull exhumed from the old Parentage Prison's mass graveyard was indeed Kelly's after comparing the DNA to that of Lee Olver. The DNA match was based on DNA, and this was in, in, indicative rather of Kelly's maternal line. The investigating forensic pathologist had also indicated that no adequate quality semantic DNA was obtained that would be able to Y DNA profile to be determined. This may be attempted later on down the track when um, they're able to do further profiling with DNA, and then it would also enable Kelly's paternal genetic genealogy. Uh, genealogy to be determined with a reference to the data already existing in the Kelly DNA study. The skeleton was missing most of its skull, the whereabouts of which are unknown. On the 1st of August 2012, Victorian government issued a licence for Kelly's bones to be returned to the Kelly family who made plans for his final burial. The family also appealed for the person who possessed Kelly's skull to return it. On the 20th of January 2013, Kelly's relatives granted his final wish and buried his remains in consecrated ground at Greta Cemetery near his mother's unmarked grave. 
A piece of Kelly's skull was also buried with his remains and was surrounded by concrete to prevent looting. The final burial followed a requiem mass held on the 18th of January 2013 at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Wangaratta. Now, during the Great Depression, the Bayside City Council built bluestone walls to protect the local beaches from erosion. The stones were taken from the outer walls of the old Melbourne jail and included headstones of those executed and buried in the grounds. Most, including Kelly's, were placed with engravings, which was the initials and the date of the execution, facing inwards. And as one of Australia's most infamous historical figures, Ned Kelly remains all-pervasive in Australian culture. Academic and folklorist Graham Seals write that, writes that Ned Kelly has progressed from outlaw to national hero in a century and to international icon, icon in a further 20 years. The still enigmatic, slightly saturn and even ambient bushranger is the undisputed, if not universally, universally admired national symbol of Australia. The term Kelly tourism describes towns such as Glen Rowan, which sustain themselves economically almost entirely through Ned's memory, while Kellyana refers to the collecting of Kelly memorabilia, merchandise and other paraphernalia. The phrase, such is life, Kelly's perhaps final words, has been an oft-quoted part of the legend. As game as Ned Kelly is an expression for bravery, and the term Ned Kelly's beard is used to describe a trend in hipster fashion. The rural districts of northeastern Victoria are collectively known as Kelly Country. Now, Ned Kelly has figured prominently in Australian cinema since 1906 with the release of The Story of the Kelly Gang, which was the world's first dramatic feature-length film. Amongst those who've portrayed him on the screen are Australian rules footballer Bob Chitty, rock musician Mick Jagger and Heath Ledger. And in the visual arts, rather, Sidney Nolan's 1946 Kelly series considered one of the greatest sequences of Australian painting of the 20th century. His stylized depiction of Kelly's helmet has become an iconic Australian image. Hundreds of performers dressed as Nolan's Kelly's starred in the opening ceremony of the 2000 Sydney Olympics. And in 2001, Peter Carey won the Booker Prize for his novel The True History of the Kelly Gang, written from the Kelly's perspective, which resulted in the 2019 film of the same name with George McKay portraying Kelly. The Ned Kelly Awards are Australia's premier prizes for crime fiction and true crime writing and Kelly is the subject of musicians so diverse as Johnny Cash and Midnight Oil as he inspired the name of American country rock band Reckless Kelly. So the destinations that we visited was Avenel, Beechworth, Benalla, Beveridge, Chiltern, Yaroa, uh, Melbourne of course, Mansfield, Gerildery, Greta and Glenrum. We also popped into Powers Lookout which is um, a fantastic place in the heart of the King Valley, actually uh, overlooking the King Valley in Victoria. It's uh, the Powers Lookout State Reserve is accessed off the Mansfield-Whitfield Road between Tolmy and Whitfield and there's a 10 minute walk to the lookout. provides stunning views over the King Valley but what is it all about? Well, Power's Lookout is named after Harry Power, the last of Australia's infamous bushrangers, who was captured at his hideout on the 5th of June 1870. Today it's a popular spot to visit both for the superb view of the King Valley, 300 metres or so below, and for its part in Australian bushranging history, and of course its connection with Ned Kelly in particular. Harry Power, transported in 1840 at the age of 21 for theft, he served his seven-year sentence and then had no trouble with the York the law rather for 13 years he'd learned to ride very well as a boy helping his father as a gamekeeper to the marquee of waterford 
One day he was falsely accused of horse theft by a pair of drunken troopers, resulting in an exchange of gunshots for which Power received a 10-year sentence. He had been released and jailed again when he escaped from Pentridge Prison in 1869 when he was 50 years old and decided then to become a bushranger. Now, Harry Power had met some of Ned Kelly's uncles, Jack and Tom Lloyd, in jail and went to see them while on the run after his escape. Thus, he met the Quins, which was Alan's parents, and made arrangements to build his base camp on the escarpment behind their property, which was surrounded by a loop of the King River like a moat. The way to Power's lookout lay across a small bridge which was just behind Quinn's and a peacock tethered on their roof was always ready to shriek a warning of interlopers. Power enjoyed storytelling and the intention it drew and it's likely that the Kelly boys hung onto his every word as he regaled listeners with tales of his involvement in peasant uprising against the British troops and parliament back in Ireland for which apparently he bore sabre scars on his face. Power's lasting fame was guaranteed when he took on the 14-year-old Ned Kelly as his apprentice, and together they carried out a string of robberies and hold-ups in which Ned learnt the tricks of the trade, including bushcraft, as they moved from one crime scene to the next at bewildering speed. After his release in 1885, Power led an honest life for the next six years and accidentally drowned while fishing in the Murray River at Swan Hill in 1891. At the lookout at Powers Lookout Car Park, you'll find interpretive signage, shelter, and toilets as well. So, we've certainly done the tour all around the northeast uh, of Victoria regarding the Ned Kelly touring route. And uh, there's plenty of destinations, as I mentioned earlier, where you can check out all the history um, of Ned Kelly. In particular, Beechworth is another cracking one. You can do a tour of um, HM, Her Majesty's or His Majesty's Prison at at Beechworth, and that was a booming gold t- gold town um, which had uh, close to 9,000 people dug gold out of Reedy Creek in Woolshed Falls and Kelly was a frequent visitor both for social purposes and court appearances at Beechworth and um, Beechworth is just a lovely town. Hapless explorer Robert O'Hara Burke is not the only man of interest linked to this historic town. Um, Beechworth is well known for its connections to the Kelly family and the gang and indeed Beechworth today is known primarily as a time capsule for Ned Kelly buffs. They also have an annual Beechworth Ned Kelly weekend. Um, and in this activity-filled celebration, all things of Kelly are held between in, held in August because uh, Ned's committal hearing was from the 6th to the 11th of August in 1880 in the courthouse in Ford Street. The Beechworth Courthouse had all, has all the original furniture and fittings from when Ned stood on the dock in 1880 before being taken down to Melbourne. You can take a visit and spend some of the time in the judge's chambers and this is the site where the outlaw was tried and found guilty of murder leading to his Supreme Court trial and subsequent executed by hanging in Melbourne. It wasn't his first time standing on the dock in Beechworth. His first court appearance was as a teenager for horse thieving and the courthouse is merely one of a number of Ned's haunts in what is now Beechworth's historical and cultural precinct. Everywhere you turn in the streets of this fine tourist town, you can become more knowledgeable about Australia's most famous bushranger. The prison is also a time capsule. It was a jail for nearly 150 years in which all four members of the Kelly gang, plus Ned Kelly's mother, were imprisoned for a while. And Kelly himself spent two years here on the top floor in cell 101. Ellen, his mother, only spent a short time here before being taken to Melbourne to complete her three-year sentence for her part in the Fitzpatrick incident. Cell 104 held condemned men as it was near the gallows. Eight execution, executions took place at His Majesty or Her Majesty's Beechworth Prison. 
And for more insight into the life during the Kelly era, you can check out the town hall and then you can see the set, the stand and stand in the cell that secured Nen's mentor, as we mentioned him, Harry Power, in 1863 and 1864. So plenty to do all around Victoria in chasing Ned Kelly. Jump onto Google, type in Ned Kelly Tours. There's all kinds of touring routes that you can take as well. And that pretty much wraps up our discussion on Ned Kelly and whether you want to call him a, you know, Australian icon. He was indeed a, a police killer. He was uh, a bank robber. He, he uh, injured innocent people, and um, that's that's my opinion. But uh, certainly an icon as far as um, Australian history is concerned. Whether you uh, agree with what he did or don't agree, you know, you can, his his place in Australian history can cannot be uh, ignored. That is for sure. And speaking of prisons, I don't know about you, but we might do a bit of a night tour of. Uh, of the uh, Beechworth Prison and also we might do a little bit of a podcast coming up on Pentridge Prison in Melbourne which has now been it's no longer a prison it's been turned into a a little sort of shopping precinct and um, a little bit more so we'll talk a little bit further down the track on uh, Pentridge Prison but I wouldn't mind doing one of those night tours at Beechworth Prison and scare the bejeebus out of myself hey thanks very much for being part of the Road Less Travel for this week we'll be back with the next uh, exciting episode next week make sure you follow us give us a like we're on facebook with the road less traveled podcast we're on instagram with the road less traveled podcast 2021 you can keep up to date with what's happening on fat cat media and our website fatcatmedia.com.au my name is nikki shea thanks very much for your company and we'll catch you somewhere on the road less traveled bye for now thanks for listening this has been the road less traveled a podcast about traveling and camping on the road written and hosted by me nikki shea produced by Fat Cat Media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, please leave a review. Any comments or questions, please email fatcat at iinet.net.au and to be notified on the new episodes, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed. (laughs) 